Good morning again. How y'all doing? Yeah? I like that. Good. Hey, uh, you guys got married, right? You're like the Rosa couple now? Rosa! Rosa! Salsa! Whatever. Congratulations, you guys. That's amazing. I got married uh, two years before Jesus came. It hasn't been that long, but uh, married life is, is spectacular, man. It is, it is amazing. You guys blessed? You enjoying it so far? Give it about a year. Okay. Um, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Such an encouraging pastor. Um, hey, it's good to be with you guys again. And uh, we are, for those of you that are new to us, we have many new people today. Why don't you guys just, the regulars here, why don't we just welcome them by just giving a clap? Yeah. We, we love it when, we love it when uh, new victims, I mean folks, come to our church and, uh, and visit with us. So God bless you, and we're glad you're here today. And then we always want to welcome the folks that, that have been calling this place home for a while. Welcome everyone. Uh, just to get kind of caught up a bit here, we are on a journey through the book of Acts in a sermon series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. And... Uh, Last week, we examined Acts 5, 17 to 21a, and uh, just so you know, all of the sermons for this series are available at our website. You know, we podcast everything on our website, and man, that's a great way to go back and to listen to previous sermons and to get more of a context for where we've been and where we're at and where we're going and stuff, and, and that's a good thing to do. We prefer, or I prefer, to just refer you to that website there so you can hear those past sermons. And that's the way that, you know, instead of doing a big recap every, you know, week, and if you ever, like, attended a service where the pastor spent about 40 minutes doing the recap, then about 20 preaching the new sermon, it happens all the time, right? And so, uh, so there's your recap, right? Just go to the website, uh, and uh, you can listen up there and get caught up. Uh, I will give us a little bit of context so our new text doesn't seem foreign, um, at this point in the biblical narrative, the apostles had been thrown into public prison uh, for disobeying the Sanhedrin, which was this religious, the religious institution led by the Sadducees and the Pharisees were in there. And uh, this organization came to them and said, you, you can't preach in the name of Jesus any longer. And keep in mind, this is the, the body of leaders that condemned Jesus to death that were plotting and planning throughout his whole ministry to, to rid the land of Jesus. And so these guys break out on the scene and, and they're preaching the word of God. The apostles are and people are getting saved left and right and things are happening. The Holy Spirit's moving and the Sanhedrin comes and, and, and tries to stop them. This is like the second time. So the apostles, all 12 of them, were thrown into public prison. But in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord came and freed them. And they went back that following morning, or that morning, and began to preach in the name of Jesus again. And so, in the storyline, in the narrative, the historical narrative, they are out of jail, out of prison, and they are preaching down in Solomon's portico or at the temple. Now, the, the cool thing is, is that the Sanhedrin was completely unaware of their breakout. They had no idea that they had broken out, that they were broke out, that they were released or freed by the angel, and, uh, and so they're 
it's the next day and they're ready to conduct business as usual and they're completely unaware of what has happened. And so this morning we're going to look at what happened next in Acts 21b to 33. Acts 21b to 33. And what I'll do is I'll begin by reading the section and, uh, and then we'll uh, pray one more time and then we'll begin to dissect it or examine it or whatever you want to call it, rightly divided I suppose. Let's look at it, 21b. It says, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Talking about the apostles. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. Verse 23, this is what they reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look! The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, uh, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. That's the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and had God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Our last verse, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Father, we want to just come to you again and... Before we preach the word of God, Lord, we need to seek you for your presence and for understanding and for open minds and hearts, God. And um, you desire to speak right through our ears, into our minds, transform our thinking, transform our hearts, our actions, uh, culminating in repentance and faith, Lord. Uh, And God, so I pray that that would be your will today and that would be what would happen, Lord, so... May we be attentive and open to you and and listening and uh, help to put away with the distractions, Lord. Uh, We have an adversary who would love to distract us right now with tons and tons of different things and different thoughts and things like that. And so we pray against him, bind him in this moment, Lord, and speak to each one of us as you so powerfully do. We give you this time, Lord. This is a moment of worship that we may sit back and be in awe of you and experience you and see you in your glory on your throne and just to know you better. And so may that be so, Lord Jesus. Come, continue to fill this place with your presence. Change us, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at, uh, at 21B. And this is kind of the way we teach here. We kind of 
work each line slowly and kind of methodically and, and just our goal is not so much as for me to tell you what to believe or to give you a bunch of fill-ins or any of that stuff. We want the Holy Spirit, who is ultimately the teacher, to minister to each one of you. And, and uh, biblically speaking, the best way for that to take place is just to read the scripture and explain what it means in its context. And let's see what happens here. So let's start with that first verse there. It says, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. The next morning, the high priest, which would have been Caiaphas, maybe even a guy named Annas, which is, was his father-in-law, they were kind of sharing this role as high priest. Annas wasn't technically the high priest. He had been released of his duties by the Romans, and Caiaphas was acting, but probably both of these guys... Um, they had arrived at the, hall of the, at the Hall of Hewn Stone, which was their meeting place on the temple grounds. This is where the Sanhedrin gathered together to discuss things, to talk about things, and to uh, deliberate on how to lead Israel and what have you. So they gathered together at this Hall of Hewn Stone uh, with their entourage. Uh, the high priest came with his entourage, with a group, it says. It says those who were with him. This would have been his religious entourage. From there, he sent message to the, the other members of the Sanhedrin. There was about 71 members altogether. He sent message to the rest of the members of the Sanhedrin to gather to discuss how to deal with the apostles who, again, disobeyed a direct order not to teach in the name of Jesus. When all the members, all 71 of the Sanhedrin were present, including the Senate members who were the elders of the nation of Israel. They were a part of that governing body. When they um, all were present and came together, including those elders, the high priest called for the apostles to be brought before them so that they could explain their actions. The high priest then sent officers, which were Levites of the temple police, to the public prison to bring the apostles back and to present them to the group. I said before, but at this point, the high priest was completely unaware of the apostles' angelic escape. If he'd have known, he wouldn't have sent guards or correctional officers, whatever we'd want to call them today, all the way over to that prison to go get them. So they had no idea. He thought, and the Sanhedrin believed, that this body of men, these 12 guys, were still huddled together somewhere in a cell at this particular place. He had no idea that they were actually over in the temple, which was kind of catty-corner to where they were, that they were over there early in the morning preaching in the name of Jesus again. So they had no clue, so they sent these guys to go get them. Look at what happened when the officers arise, uh, arrived at the prison to get the apostles. Look at 22. It just clearly and plainly says, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. Now, prisons in those days were usually constructed from either natural or man-made caves. They would take, and there, for some reason there's a lot of caves in Palestine, there's a lot of rocky crags and 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 uh, embankments and and stuff like that. 
And, uh, and so there's a lot of just naturally formed caves. I don't know if it's from water from before or whatever it is, but there's a lot of caves in the whole region of Palestine, especially down in the Jerusalem area. And, and what governmental officials or Romans would do is they would take these caves and, and they would go into the cave and they would check it out. And if it had like multiple chambers, they would put bars in front of each chamber and call that a cell. And then they would actually have a set of bars at the entrance. Or if it was just one large uh, cave, they would just take bars and put them at the front and call it a prison or a jail cell. And so these jail cells were very primitive. They're nothing quite like what you see on TV where guys got see-through televisions and all the luxuries that you have, minus the fact that it's not in a nice spacious living room, but it's an 8 by 9 or whatever. And, uh, but there were nothing quite like that. They were vastly different. It was a cave, very primitive. And, and, you know, they would just kind of slide bread and water underneath the, the gate, and then that's how you'd eat, and you'd just be locked away in this thing, and it'd be cold, damp, and moist, and just a, just a nasty, nasty place to be. Now, the title public, because, you know, the prison that they were in is called, from our prior text that we studied last week, it's called the public prison. The title public denotes that this prison may have been set in a public setting where regular citizens passed by. And this was a common thing, too, in those days, that they would have a, a constructed sort of jail or prison with bars and columns and things like that and a roof and stuff. They would have these out in the open, and the idea uh, was to sort of treat the prisoners like zoo animals. And so that there would be some places in there, I would imagine, where you could have some privacy, but for the most part, you were exposed if you were in this thing like a zoo animal. And the, the thinking is, we'll put that right smack dab in the middle of where there's a lot of foot traffic and people will see you all the time and it'll be a very humiliating thing and cause you to really rethink your life and like, wow, I'm in jail and everyone can see me. How humiliating, right? Don't know if it's all that humiliating in this day and age, but it certainly was back then. And so this is a public prison, which means that it was probably set forth in a public area where people could see them, like zoo animals or something like that, very degrading. Now, when the officers that were sent from the Sanhedrin to the public prison arrived, when they arrived at the prison, they entered, but they could not find the apostles anywhere. And I love the text. It says the text, literally, it says that they did not find them in the prison, Meaning that when they went in and looked at the particular area where they left them, they weren't there, so what'd they do? They began to scour the rest of the place, the rest of the facility. They went and looked, and maybe if it had multiple cells, they looked in each cell, they looked around corners. If it was a cave thing, then they went into all the chambers. They looked everywhere. They scoured this place. And I think the big reason is obviously they were sent on a task to bring these guys back, but you certainly didn't want to be sent as a government official, and then come back empty-handed. Boy, that would be bizarre. Uh, they weren't there. What? Right? And so, man, this is a weird, awkward moment. So I can see these guys in my mind's eye looking everywhere for them. They go in and like, oh, man, they're not over there. Maybe, maybe somehow they were moved for some reason. They go over here and look. Nobody. They're looking throughout this whole thing. They can't find them anywhere. They looked everywhere just to make sure that the apostles had not been moved to another part or whatever. But after a thorough search, their search turned up nothing, and they were forced to return to the Sanhedrin empty-handed. 
When they arrived back at the Hall of Hewn Stone, they reported the news. Look at 23. <laughs> they said this to the guys they were reporting to. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. All right? Back at the prison, everything was just as it should have been with the exception of the missing apostles. The doors were shut. The doors were locked. Apparently, the doors showed no signs of being tampered with. The chain, the bolt, those things were in place. And then there were two correctional guards standing at the entrance. Notice how he puts standing. What the author wants us to know is that they were upright and awake, right? He didn't say they were sitting down. He didn't say they were laying on a couple of nice cots with a couple of Coleman sleeping bags, taking a little snooze. He said they were standing. The doors were locked. They were secured. And these guys were upright, meaning they were awake. They were guarding their post. They were alert and seemingly had no idea that there was nobody inside because they're just standing there, you know, just doing their thing. Amazing. Now, they then told the Sanhedrin that after being let in, okay, the guards let them in so they could take a look around. They told the Sanhedrin that after being let in, after these guards let us in, they unlocked the door and opened the gate, and we went in, we found nobody inside. The apostles were gone. We don't know what happened. There was nobody there, and they should have been there because the place was locked and guarded and all those things. Now look at 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, when they heard this testimony, it says they were greatly perplexed about them, about their words, about the apostles. And it says, wondering what this would come to. Greatly perplexed is an interesting phrase or word or expression in the Greek. It is diaporeo, which means to be at a loss for words. The religious leaders had become literally by the missing apostles. They had become dumbfounded or confused to the point of being utterly speechless. They were speechless. They were like without words. They couldn't make sense of it. You know, I can imagine at this point when they're being told this, all they could do is do what we do when we're dumbfounded and we're speechless. We just go like this, right? We just put up our hands and we lift up our shoulders. We're perplexed. That's what perplexed means. It just means to be dumbfounded here to the point of being speechless. We don't know what to make of it. That's what they did. Have you ever done that? Somebody says something to you and you're like, usually it's, you know, they say something stupid to you and you're like, what? You know? But you're just like perplexed. You're dumbfounded. Well, you, can you see these guys dressed in all their religious garb and they've got these phylacteries and, and all these weird things that they put on. They probably look like Mr. Roboto, the old sticks. Remember, the, you guys are way too young for that. The old sticks video, Mr. Roboto. They just looked weird. You know, they had all this religious stuff and all these ornaments and beauty and these boxes on their foreheads and this weird stuff. And here they are, the most powerful men in Israel, and they're dumbfounded going... What happened? I don't know. What went down? I don't know. They have no idea. They're perplexed. They're speechless. They shrug their shoulders, I would imagine. And then it says they began to wonder what would happen next. This is interesting. When they 
heard the news, they were dumbfounded, and then they began to wonder, what the heck's going to go on next? What does this mean? They're not there. What is playing out here? What is going to happen next? And I can tell you right now, the guys that were back there guarding the doors probably felt like their lives were in jeopardy. Because back in those days, if a guard fell asleep or something happened during his duty, man, the Roman guards were just straight up executed. They were killed. I don't know if the Jewish guards were killed, but maybe they were, but they would have been punished. Can you imagine how these guys felt? Oh, man, they're gone. We were on duty. We're going to have to give an account, right? Interesting stuff. So they're wondering what's going to happen next. John MacArthur gave great commentary on this verse. He said, Already at their wits' end, talking about the Sanhedrin, as to how to stop the spread of Christianity, the harried Jewish authorities wondered what was going to happen next. As their efforts proved futile, their panic and alarm mounted. The apostles were openly flaunting their authority. They were powerless to stop the spread of what to them was the worst heresy imaginable and the greatest threat to their own accountability. And then MacArthur says, people from all over the region were thronging Jerusalem to witness firsthand the miracles done by the apostles. Miracles that the Sanhedrin still refused to believe. Okay, what's happening, and what MacArthur is saying is, is that things are really beginning to mount here with these religious leaders. Man, they've told the apostles to stop doing what they're doing. They've arrested them. They've arrested them twice, basically, for it. This is the second time. They threw them in prison. Now they're gone, and they're wondering what's going to happen next, and their tempers are really starting to flare. They're starting to get extremely agitated. These were the same men who basically put Jesus through a trial and had him executed, called for his blood. They were responsible for his death. They certainly did not appreciate or love Christianity or the apostles or any of that. They thought it was a tremendous heresy. They thought it was the opposite of Judaism, and in a way it's just the culmination of Judaism. But they, they hated this whole thing. And so they're really starting to boil. They're really getting agitated, really, really highly concerned. Look at what happened next in 25, and all this is really going to come to a head soon, but we'll get there. Look at what happened in 25. This is really interesting. It says, and someone came and told them, <laughs> and, he, and look at this, look, I don't know how it's translated in your translation, in my superior ESV, it's translated as look with an exclamation point. The guy comes up and goes, look, I mean, he's really trying to get their attention. Look, and then he says, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Man, at the moment of their deliberation, they're speculating as to how to deal with this thing. They're missing what's going to come of this. What do we do? At the moment of that conversation, someone came and reported how the apostles were back over, how they actually escaped, per se, and how they were back over teaching at Solomon's portico. The religious, or the messenger then, led the religious leaders out of their meeting place because he had to storm into the hall of hewn stone. He came into there and brought them out and then led them to some distance, I guess, and then pointed out. He pointed them out and said, look, look for yourself. Look at, those are the guys that you guys locked up yesterday. 
Now, there is an antagonism about this man's message and about his words. He didn't just come and say, hey, look, you know, uh, those guys, they're over there doing it again. No, he came over, and there's an antagonism in his, in his words and in his approach. This guy is not a fan of Jesus. This guy is not a fan of the apostles. There's antagonism in it. What he's doing is he's trying to provoke the Sanhedrin into doing something drastic, something harsh. He's basically saying, paraphrased, they're over there. You put them in jail, but they're over there openly defying your command again. What are you going to do about it? That's basically what he's saying. He's trying to provoke them. He's got a cattle prod, and he's propping them. And they're like, hold on a second. You know, He's trying to get them to do something dramatic is what he's trying to do. Now look at 26 to see how they responded to the messenger's message. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them. Okay, they went over and got them. And then it says, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. All right, the Sanhedrin listened to the messenger's words, but they responded in a different manner in which he provoked them to do. He wanted them to go over and do something dramatic, something forceful, but they sent guards over to retrieve them, but they did it in a very peaceable way. I don't know if they just walked up on them and said, good afternoon or good morning. Please come with us. I don't think it went down like that. They were probably armed, but they went over and they asked them gently, peaceably. They didn't want to make a scene. They didn't want to go over and they wanted to make a scene. They wanted to put these guys to to pain and to keep them in prison, but they didn't act that way. And why didn't they respond with violence? Why weren't they um, provoked by the antagonist to go over and do something irrational or something explicit? Because they feared being stoned by the people, it says, right at the end of 26. Now, the apostles were pretty well liked by the common folks. They, they, were, they were liked by the citizens of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. Why? Because they were ministering to the people in ways that the Sanhedrin never did and never could. The apostles possessed miraculous powers and healed people from their sicknesses. And it says all their sicknesses, and they healed all the folks that came to them. They, they exercised demons and, and unclean spirits. They preached... <laughs> a message of hope and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, the gospel. These were desperate times in Israel. The Roman occupation combined with the empty promises made by the wealthy, aristocratic religious leaders drove the people to the point of desperation and hopelessness. The Sanhedrin had no message of hope and they had no miraculous powers. Their message was one of works righteousness. You just keep doing all these things and God will be pleased with you. Keep obeying all these rules and keep giving all this money and keep doing all these things and you're going to have favor with God and you're going to be blessed by God and you're going to have this. And, and, and don't just do the commandments because those things are important. They really are. I'm not downgrading those things. But they had added hundreds and hundreds of their own little laws on top of God's law. 
And so guess what? You've got to do God's law and obey these things to be blessed and to prosper and to be saved. But you've got to do our things as well. Judaism by this point had become a crippling religion. All religion is crippling, in all honesty. It just puts people in a mode of trying to earn their way, and you can never earn your way with God. It's by His grace alone. And so this was a hope. Think of this. Think of having a foreign country come in to your community, your area, and take hold of it, and now govern you according to their rule. And, but they allow the religion to remain, and the religion basically controls and manipulates people just like the new government does. This was a state-sanctified um, religion in those days, Judaism was. It was the religion of Israel. And these guys had taken it and modified it and molded it into a controlling, manipulative, money-making scheme. And when I think of that, I think of a lot of those guys that are on TV preaching and faking all these things and doing all these things. I'm not saying that God doesn't do miraculous things or whatever to some degree, I suppose. But there's just schemes in church, in the church today. There are things that are going on and they're controlling and manipulative and, and you know, it's just a, it's just a tragic, tragic thing. And, and so what did that produce in this culture? Hopelessness. You know, works righteousness, earning your way produces ultimately two things. Hopelessness, because we try to assimilate and do all the things and we get in this pattern of trying to do all these things to please God and we fail because we stink because we're sinners and we're not naturally inclined to obedience to God's laws and so what does that happen if, if, if we are going to get somewhere with God and it has to come through doing all these things and obeying all these rules and producing all this stuff and we fail and we fail and we fail and we fail that produces what despair but guess what? Some people get really, really good at playing the game and checking off the boxes and doing all their things. And every week their preachers give them these lists of things to do and they go through this list and they get really good at being obedient. And they get really good at marking off the boxes and they feel really good about themselves and ultimately that builds pride. And they become religious. They become like the Pharisees. Well, that was what was impressed upon these people. Jesus looked out at them many times, and one time he looked out at them and said, look at them, they're all lost. They're sheep without a shepherd. And they had a 71-member Sanhedrin that was supposed to shepherd them according to the will and word of God, and they had failed them. The people were hopeless in religion. They were hopeless via the government. They were hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. And the apostles brought hope because they brought the message of the gospel. There is a Savior who has come in your steed, done the work. Believe in him. Cast yourself upon him. Trust in him, and thee shall be saved. That was their message, and that was a message of hope. And they were liked because of their message and because of the ministry that they did to the people. Amazing, amazing stuff. And so the guards don't go over and brutalize them and wrestle them out of their pulpits. They go over and gently do it because they know that they are favored by the people and liked by the people, and if they treat them bad in a public setting, what could happen? It says that people could pick up rocks and start hurling them at them until they're not breathing anymore because that was a form of capital punishment back then. They were in fear that that could happen. And so they brought them back to the Sanhedrin 
in a peaceable way back to the hall of hewn stone peaceably. Now look at 27 to 28. It says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, the blood of Jesus, upon us. I love 27 for several reasons. First, it's the word of God. But there's some other cool things. Verse 27 shows us that the apostles submitted to the Sanhedrin's request by coming with them back to the hall of hewn stone. They didn't stay right there in their place and say, forget about it. We don't have to listen to you. We're going to keep preaching the gospel. No, they stopped doing what they were doing. They submitted and they returned to the hall of hewn stone or they went to the hall of hewn stone with the guards, they went back with them. And the thing is, is that they knew that their lives were in danger. And yet they showed no resistance whatsoever. Why? The reason is because they knew that God controlled their circumstances. They knew that it was by the loving hand and merciful hand of an all-powerful sovereign God that they were, it was through his hand that the Sanhedrin was actually doing this. I mean, if God is sovereign and over all things, then he allows all things and ordains them for his ultimate purpose. And so they had this wonderful, rock-solid faith in the fact that God is in control. And so guess what? If they come and arrest us, God is in control. If they bring us back and mistreat us, God is in control. If they put us to death, it's God's will. God will make something beautiful come from it. We've got to trust in our sovereign God. He's literally over all things. That was the attitude. And that's why they could submit so freely. That's why they didn't resist. What an example there is for us when we're faced with persecution. Us who are Christians. Oh, so... Often when somebody comes and there's a problem and an issue and there's persecution or criticism or whatever, so quickly we are to defend and to put up our spiritual dukes. No, the right response to persecution, it's going to sound crazy, is submission. What would happen if Jesus had put up his dukes? We wouldn't have a savior on a cross or have access to him and to his atonement and to heaven. He didn't defend himself. He willfully laid down his life. His calling to us when faced with persecutors is to lay down our lives on his behalf. Why? Because we trust that God controls our circumstances, that he is in control. The things that are happening to you in your life this very day, yesterday, last week, or what will happen next week, are happening because a sovereign God has allowed them to happen. And there's a purpose behind those things. And so often we look at all these tragedies, and there are great tragedies. There are hurts, and there are things that annihilate us emotionally in all these things. And, and instead of saying, I trust you, I believe that you're controlling all the circumstances, and I believe what it says in Romans, that all things will redound for your namesake, for your glory. Instead of doing that, we start shaking our fist at God, we start questioning, we doubt, or we boldly, blatantly walk away from Him, or we continue to remain in our non-belief or whatever it is, we, you know, we 
emerge in despair and heartache and depression while all the time we have a sovereign God who's in control and uses these things for his glory and for the benefit of those who love him. Even though it hurts, even though it stings, even though it's painful and it's inconceivable, God is behind it. We must believe this or you will not have peace and life will destroy you. You hear me? Life will destroy you. The enemy will be victorious because that's what he wants. He's the one that uses, he's the one that brings those things. Well, God is the one that ordains them, but Satan is the one that uses them to turn us from God. That's what happens. When all along the tragedies and the difficulties and the harsh realities of life and the, the, the punches to the chin and all that are meant to drive us to the foot of the cross, to rely on Jesus Christ, to open our arms to Him. It's okay to say, why? It's okay to doubt once in a while. But believe that He loves you. Believe that He cares. He died on a cross for crying out loud. Man, that sums it up, does it not? Amen. Well, if you went this far, then that must mean that this purpose, what happened here for me in my state, in my steed, something that I could never do, he did this, then really that makes all other things relatively small in comparison to what happened there. If he did this, can't we trust in this? And then mourn and weep when things happen, it's okay. But may we not be persuaded to walk away from our gracious, loving Lord. Man. I'm getting a little excited. And you know, I'm the worst, man. Can I just be honest? I stink as a Christian. There are just times where I'm just like, you preach it, you don't believe it. You know, I do that. We're not perfect. You know, I was at a beautiful, the most beautiful funeral I've ever been to yesterday. It was just beautiful. And during this whole thing, you know, whenever you're at a funeral, you're faced with your mortality. And, and I was sitting there, and it was this beautiful thing. And then all of a sudden, man, I was doubting like crazy. I started saying to myself, Phil, do you believe what you preach? No. Do you believe what you've been teaching people for years? Kind of. And then Colby preached the gospel. And that changed everything. We're futile, fallen people. Even those of us who have been saved by a gracious, merciful, all-loving God, we have an old nature about us that just interferes, and it really likes to show up at funerals and during other things. And we just get, oh, man, is it real? And then we hear the gospel, and we know that it's real. We know that Jesus came and did what he did. And that we can rest in that work. Boy, these guys had tremendous faith in a God who controlled all their circumstances. And they willfully went. They didn't resist or kick against that whatsoever. The high priest Caiaphas then questioned and reminded the apostles of the warning that they had previously been given. He basically said, we told you guys not to preach in the name of Jesus again, and yet you have filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching, with your heresies, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Very interesting little thing there. The religious leaders thought that the purpose of the apostles' teaching was to turn the public against them 
for murdering Jesus. They thought that they were seeking to make the public aware of their blood guilt. They misunderstood what the apostles were actually trying to do. The apostles were not trying to turn the public against the religious leaders by pointing out their responsibility in the death of Jesus. They were not trying to publicize their blood guilt. They were not seeking to have them condemned. Why? Because the apostles understood that they already stood condemned. The apostles wanted the religious leaders to be covered and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, not condemned by it. This is why Peter and John pointed out their sin and called for them to repent and believe back in Acts 4.10-12 when they were in front of the Sanhedrin the first time. Folks, our mission is not to judge and condemn those who are outside of Jesus. We must remember that the Word of God says in John 3.18 that people already stand condemned. We're all condemned. We're born condemned thanks to the fall of man. Our mission, rather, is not to go out and to judge and condemn, which is so often what we do in our self-righteousness. Our mission is to speak the truth about our fallen condition to others in love and to offer them the remedy, which is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has won and secured victory over sin, death, and Satan for sinners. And that that victory can become a personal reality for any and all who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That was the mission and the message of the apostles and the mission and message of the early church. And that is the mission of Redemption Hill Church. We're not called to go out and judge and condemn. We're called to go out and share the truth in love. Help them understand our fallen condition. Help to explain to them why they do what they do and why they behave the way they behave. Why we all do those things. And then offer them hope, the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ, the death, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He's the antidote to the problem. Life and spiritual life and new life, new creation is available in what he has done. Meaning, you don't have to be judged and condemned for eternity because of your sin, and you can change now through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our message. Peter and the apostles then gave the religious leaders an explanation for their actions. Look at verse 29. It says, But Peter and the apostles answered... We must obey God rather than men. Paraphrased, God is the one who told us to do what we've been doing and we must obey Him rather than you. Jesus had said this uh, in a similar way to them earlier during His ministry before He ascended into heaven. He said in Luke 24, 46 to 48, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here it is. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning right here in your hometown of Jerusalem. The apostles were doing exactly what the Lord Jesus had 
previously commanded them to do. They were proclaiming in Jerusalem that repentance and forgiveness of sins was available in the name of Jesus, who is the resurrected Lord and Savior. Another way to paraphrase the apostles' word, words here words here would be this. We're doing what God told us to do, and you're resisting God by trying to stop us. That's another way of putting it. Look at it. It says we must obey God rather than men. They're basically saying, God, Jesus told us to go do what we're doing, and you're telling us, no, don't do that, which means that you are resisting us, which means that you are ultimately resisting God. Now, this is something that the religious leaders would never want to hear. Why? Because they're religious leaders. They're on God's team. They're God's pope. They're God's religious ministers. They're God's empowered entity and group that's supposed to, you know, delegate and, and, and expand and, 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 and produce ministry and religion and these things. They believed they were entrusted with this great responsibility, and in a way they were. Jesus came and removed it from them, but they didn't know that. And so to say to them that you're, you're out of the will of God by trying to stop us is a massive offense to them. The more religious a person is when you attack their religion or you attack their leadership, the more ticked off they get, right? These super righteous religious people, man, when you question things they do and all that, oh, they just get all fired up. These guys are beginning to boil now. Now, this is the second time that the apostles pointed that out to the Sanhedrin. It's the second time they told them, you're trying to stop us and you're trying to thwart the will of God. You're opposing God. The first time was back in Acts 4, 19 to 20. Now, the apostles then shifted a little bit towards seeking to reinforce this point that they've made about them opposing God by trying to stop them. They shift towards trying to reinforce it by making a series of bold statements which begin at 30. Let's look at 30 together. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. A paraphrase that would say, you opposed God by rejecting and hanging Israel's Messiah on a tree. But then it's got this beautiful positive note to it, which they didn't want to hear. But the God of our fathers, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, that's who the fathers are there, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac raised him from the dead. This is the second time that the Sanhedrin had been told this by the apostles. There's a lot of repetition going on here. The first time they were arrested, they basically said these things to them the first time. This is the second time. They're sticking to the gospel. They're sticking to their message. They're consistent. Consistency really pays off. They're telling them the same things they've already told to them. Now, when they said it this time, though, it was a little different. Back in Acts 4.10, Peter said that they had crucified Jesus. He used the word crucified. Here they use the term hanging him on a tree. Now, obviously they mean, this, mean the same thing, but there's a little more explicitness behind the second use. Uh, there is no doubt that the apostles had Deuteronomy 21-23 in mind uh, when they said hanging him on a tree, which basically says anyone hung on a tree is cursed. Crucifixion was the worst possible punishment for a capital offense. Hands down. It was the most gruesome, 
nasty, belittling, mean form of punishment that anyone could experience for a capital offense. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was a humiliating and excruciating death. People were hung on the cross naked, out in a public setting. Okay, they'd hang there naked for days, naked. We don't like to be seen naked. Before the fall, it was cool to frolic naked. After the fall, get me some fig leaves, please. Right? Amen? I don't want to be seen naked. My kids don't want to see that either. We don't want to be seen like that. It's a, it's a, it's a humiliating sort of thing. You know, our propriety is exposed. And, and so these people would be hung out in the open. What a terrible thing. And it was excruciating. You know, the, the end came very slowly. Death came very slowly by suffocation. You know, what would happen is as the person hung there, you know, they'd have these nails through their ankles and they would have to hold their body weight up on those nails, which would hurt so bad. But if they sagged, then their rib cage and their organs would sort of press against their lungs, squeezing the air out of them. And so they would die of suffocation because they couldn't stand the pain in their feet anymore, and so they would just let go, and they would buckle over, and then they would suffocate, naked, and usually scourged beyond recognition beforehand. They would be whipped, you know, 39 times, 40 minus 1. When Jesus was whipped like that, it, uh, the scripture literally says that people couldn't recognize him. They didn't see him as the Jesus that they knew because he was just deformed and bloodied and ripped open and torn and beaten. This was a horrible, horrible way to be put to death. And it was reserved for the worst of the worst. Which means that the Sanhedrin and the Romans thought that Jesus, the lover of men, was the worst of the worst. The apostles used the phrase, hanging him on a tree, to paint a graphic visual for their hearers. They then contrasted the graphic death, the hanging Jesus on a tree. They contrasted that graphic death of Jesus with the glorious resurrection of Jesus. Paraphrased, it would sound something like this. You cursed Jesus to death on a tree. You put him through the unimaginable the worst possible form of death. But the God of our fathers raised him in glory. Raised him in glory. You cursed him, but God blessed him, is what they're saying right now before these men who put Jesus to death. Oh, you intended evil, but God took it and made something amazing come from it. You cursed him to death on a tree, God resurrected him and blessed him and has blessed multitudes through that is what they're saying. That's the contrast that they're trying to make. Now look at 31. They're not done because there's more to Jesus than just that. Verse 31 says, God exalted him. God ex exalted the one that you nailed to a tree at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The one that they cursed by nailing to a tree was not only raised by God, but he was exalted by God and put at his right hand 
as leader and savior. And that is precisely what God the Father did for His Son after the ascension. The apostles repeated themselves here as well. They taught these things in a prior sermon at the Sermon at Pentecost. And then they taught these things before the Sanhedrin. Back in Acts 2.33, they said this, Being therefore Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, Oh, you crushed him on a tree and we buried him and all that, but he rose and he's been exalted. He's at the right hand of God. Acts 4.12 He said this about him being the Savior, and there is salvation in no one else, not Allah, not Buddha, not Hinduism, nothing else. It's nowhere else, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You murdered him, God raised him, God exalted him, God seated him, God has made him leader and Savior to the world. That's what God did. You did this. This is what God did. You see the contrast? Right now, they're really getting ticked. They're going, I cannot believe what these men are saying in our, pre- in our holy presence. How dare they say this to us? We got rid of that guy, Jesus. We know what happened. No way. You're wrong. Now, in verse 31, the verse we're covering, they added a, a cool little title here for Jesus, and it's called leader. And I don't know if it appears anywhere else in the scripture. I've never seen him called a leader. I've seen him called all these other things, rabbi and these things, but leader. Leader is archegos in the original language, in the Greek, and it means initiator or pioneer. The term is applied to Jesus in Acts 3.15 as the author of life or the archegos of life. Interestingly, the ancient Greeks gave this title to some of their mythological heroes, like Athena, who was the supposed goddess of uh, wisdom and and war and art, and who supposedly founded or pioneered the city of Athens. Athens is named after this gal. So this was a, a, a Greek phrase used to denote the founder of something and the ultimate leader, the hero of something here. This is the term they use. He is the leader and savior. God exalted and installed Jesus at his right hand as leader Savior to do what? Look at the end of verse 31. To do the very thing that these religious leaders were supposed to be doing on God's behalf. What does it say? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Man, that, Jesus is the leader Savior and that is his office to distribute the mercy and grace and saving power and regenerative power of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. Oh, they're not done yet. 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, We're telling you these things, Sanhedrin, religious leaders, We're not just saying them, we're saying them from first-hand account. We walked with Jesus, and we're taught by Jesus, and we're saved by Jesus, and ministered to by Sabus, and given the Holy Spirit through Jesus, and Jesus, Jesus. We were there, we saw it all happen. And the incredible thing is, is that nowhere in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, do any of the religious leaders ever challenge their experience. 
They never call into question their testimony about what they had seen. They called into question the gospel and what they taught, but they never said, you never were with Jesus. Jesus never actually really came. People say that today. Oh, he never really walked the earth. Oh, they never said that to the... They never denied their experience with Jesus. Never. And they're saying, we are witness to these, witnesses to these things, and not just us, but so is the Holy Spirit. Wow. And then they said, who God has given to those who obey him. Did they not just say that they were disobeying God and opposed to God a few moments ago? And now they're saying the Holy Spirit has given those who obey. The inference is, you don't have the Holy Spirit. We do. Can you imagine what's going through these guys' minds right now, these religious leaders who were supposedly led by the Holy Spirit and charged with the responsibility of leading the people in religion and all these things? They are being told over and over and over, you are not the leaders, you are not in charge, you have lost your ministry with God, you have disobeyed, you have been disqualified, over and over and over. That's what they're saying to the Sanhedrin. Can you imagine what must have been going through their minds now? Do you think they were gnashing their teeth? Just boiling? Oh, man. Now, let's just get a little recap before we get to where it all comes to a nice head. In blows! All right? Up to this point, the Sanhedrin believed that the apostles had committed at least four offenses against them. Highest religious court in the area, in the nation. This was like standing before the Supreme Court and blasting them. You ain't going to last long in there. First of all, you're going to get held in contempt and thrown into public prison. Okay? Four things, four offenses were committed against them. They believed. And there's probably more. Number one, they denied their doctrine by proclaiming resurrection. The Sanhedrin, the most, most of the members were Sadducees, and I've talked about this. They denied all miraculous things. They didn't believe in angels or resurrection or any miraculous things. They didn't, they didn't believe in angels. And an angel released these guys. What a slap in the face, right? They didn't believe in supernatural things. They denied all the supernatural. They based their whole thing on theory, or not on theory, but on, on rationalism and on logic and what could be proven and on science. Isn't there a huge contingency of people that believe that stuff today? I don't believe it unless I can see it. I don't believe it unless it's proven through these other means. It must be something that I can touch and feel and look and examine. I'm not going to do this spiritual thing. I'm not going to do this supernatural faith thing. That's what they believed. Incredible. And they were, the Old Testament is filled with miracles and angel works and the angel of the Lord and all this stuff. They denied most of their own scripture. And yet they were in charge. Incredible. The apostles denied their doctrine of rejecting resurrection. The message of the apostles was Jesus was resurrected. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope, no gospel. And so that was the primary thing that they pushed. So they denied their doctrine. They defied their authority by preaching in the name of Jesus after they had ordered them to stop, right? This is why they're in court again. You guys keep doing what we told you to do. We don't want you teaching in the name of Jesus. We don't want you mentioning the name of Jesus. We don't want pounds in the name of Jesus. We don't want high fives in the name of Jesus. 
We don't want somersaults in the name of Jesus. We don't want that ugly, nasty, disgusting, heretical name Jesus mentioned again. Don't do it or else. And what were they doing? Pardon me. Jesus, ha <laughs> ha, you know, right? They were teaching in the name of Jesus. They were defying their authority. Three, they threatened their power, influence, and dominance over the people by winning large numbers of converts. People were running, people were basically jumping out of Judaism, like people jumping off of a sinking boat. They were flooding the Solomon's portico at the gospel command. They were just coming and they were hearing this hope and this message of hope and seeing this power being distributed through these apostles. Jesus is healing power through them and they were just jumping out of Judaism, jumping out of these other systems of belief there and fleeing to Christ and being healed and saved by Jesus Christ and being made a part of the body, part of the church in droves. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 a few days later, and then all of a sudden nobody could keep count because there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Who were these folks? These folks used to be, belonged to Judaism. Who controlled Judaism? The Sanhedrin. Well, our offerings have been down lately. Maybe it's because all those people left our church and became Christians. You understand what they were doing in the temple? You remember how Jesus cleared the temple? He did it twice, at the beginning of his ministry and towards the end of his ministry. He did it because the religious leaders had essentially turned that thing into a money monopoly, into a money-making scheme. They were ripping poor people off. People couldn't come and make their offerings because a dove was too expensive for them to cover. They couldn't even buy a drink to pour out on the altar. I mean, it just, it just was a scam. It was a religious money-making scam. The Sadducees were the wealthiest people in all the land, probably next to the Roman officials. They had big bank. Camels with spinners, big houses. I mean, they, these guys were, you know, they had cribs back then that they would have filmed it. These guys had, like, limo magic carpets that they rode around. I don't know. They just, whew, Aladdin, right? That's terrible. They just... They were rich, and it was a scheme and a scam, and, 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 and the religious leaders felt threatened. Why? Because their power and their influence and their dominance and their incomes and their money and their, their church was being threatened by all these people leaving their religion. Four, and this was probably the one that got them the most, they assaulted their spirituality by charging them with the murder of Israel's Messiah, Jesus. You hung them on a tree. You did this, but God did this. But technically, his blood guilt is on you. We're not interested in publicizing that. We're interested in turning you from your sin and having you covered by the blood instead of guiltified by it, instead of condemned forever. I don't know if guiltified is a word. Let's roll it. Sounds good. The small sermon that the apostles preached in verses 29 to 32 became the tipping point. These things had happened. They interpreted the apostles' actions as all these negative things, you know, denying and defying and threatening and assaulting them. And then this little sermon all about Jesus again and how he's exalted and all the stuff they didn't believe, it was the tipping point. Look at how the religious leaders responded in 33. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The religious leaders had had enough. Filled with rage, they desired to kill and eliminate the troubling apostles. Convicting preaching will inevitably provoke a violent reaction from those hardened in sin. When the religious leaders heard the apostles' bold presentation, they heard it as blasphemy and became enraged. Diaprio, which is enraged in the Greek there, appears only here in our text and in Acts 7.54, and it literally, it literally refers to cutting something in two. These men were cut in two by the apostles' words and actions. They were that angry that they felt like they, it almost like they had exploded in half, is what the Greek paints here. But instead of yielding to the truth, the, heads, the Sanhedrin hardened their hearts. As they had done to Jesus in spite of the abundant evidence, they rejected the apostles' teaching and violently opposed them as blasphemers. The Apostle Paul would later face the same reaction by people. Acts 9, 22-23 records that after his conversion, he kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews, that would be the religious Jews, who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. And when days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. I have some ending thoughts for us. Our gospel presentations must be definitive enough that the world must take note, even if they reject our message. If the gospel we preach is not convicting enough to make some men angry, how can it be convicting enough to bring them to true salvation? Many pulpiteers today offer salvation in Jesus for reasons that fall way short of the biblical rationale. Rarely are things like sin and depravity, spiritual helplessness, or rescue or hell mentioned anymore in pulpits. What you will hear a lot of are these sorts of invitations to believe. Believe in Jesus so you can experience peace. Believe in Jesus so you can have healthier relationships. Believe in Jesus so you can be healed from your physical and emotional ailments. Believe in Jesus so you can become a better person. Believe in Jesus so you can become a moral person. Believe in Jesus so you can become a religious person. Believe in Jesus so you can become a better parent. Believe in Jesus so you can become a loving neighbor. Believe in Jesus so you can become a compassionate person. Believe in Jesus so you can become a better employee. Believe in Jesus so you can have your best life now. And some of these things are good things. But unless sin and an eternity apart from God, our absolute depravity, that we can do nothing apart from the grace of God, unless sin 
and, and, and e eternity and these things are mentioned in gospel presentations, what are people getting saved unto? Salvation, Jesus just becomes an addition to your life. I prayed to receive Christ because I want peace in my life. Well, Jesus definitely brings peace, does he not? But have you dealt with your sin issue? You see, there's something that's so critical to salvation, which is the ugly R word in churches today, and that's repentance. Repentance and faith, salvation, they go together. You can't have one without the other. And so many people are being led to the Lord for reasons that fall short of the biblical rationale, fall short of the fact that we're spiritually depraved, that we're actually enemies of God, that we need to repent of our sin. They're being led to God for lesser reasons. And it's not that these reasons are trivial, they're important things. But they're not the biblical reality. Does Jesus bring some of those things into your life after you're saved? Absolutely. But unless people are taught and trained to deal with their sin, to turn, there is no salvation. None. You cannot be saved. You cannot have Jesus living in you and be a saved person without hating sin and without turning from sin. It's an impossibility. And just countless thousands of people in the church today are being brought into the church and supposedly saved for far lesser reasons. Nobody wants to talk about sin anymore. Or sin is called a little problem. The fall of man was the greatest, most, it was the greatest act of treason against God and it was the most horrific thing to ever happen in all of the universe. And yet, and that's sin that caused it. And yet sin is a little problem. We have a little problem we have a little sin problem that Jesus would care to deal with. Really? Every person who teaches that, I'm going to buy them a police scanner and let them listen to what goes on in this town every night. Every night there's shootings and murders. Sin's a little problem. And it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's so much more than gang violence. It's so much more than being the meth capital What message are we sharing with those around us? What gospel are we preaching? Are we offering them the American gospel, which is nothing more than moral therapy? Are we presenting Jesus as a helpmate who desires to improve our existing lives? A Jesus who desires to fix all our problems and give us self-esteem and you know, relational satisfaction and health and money and possessions and, and the world wrapped around our fingertips. You know what? The world loves that gospel. Why? Because it allows people to add Jesus to their lives and to remain in their sin, which is what they love. The only people that are offended by that particular gospel of the gospel that's lesser than hell and lesser than depravity and helplessness and the things that the gospel really is. The only people that are offended by that particular gospel are biblical Christians and the Trinity. That gospel is an offense to the very God that we call our Savior. Man. 
And I'm not saying these things because you guys get it wrong. Maybe some of you do. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just stating facts. I'm a, I'm a student of the church. I study the church. I'm watching what's going on. I don't want to beat you guys up. Maybe a little bit. I'm beating myself up at home when I'm studying this stuff. You know? I'm the big punching bag at home. I can't tell you how many times I've presented a lesser gospel. You know, maybe I was teaching on peace, and that's how you have peace, through the Prince of Peace. Never mentioning sin. Never mentioning repentance. I think we're all guilty probably to some degree. I know I am. Man, I don't want to preach a gospel that falls short of the biblical gospel. I don't want to offend God by degrading his son and by degrading our reality. The reality of this fallen world. I don't think you want to either. Friends, our message must be biblical. Jesus came as the Redeemer who lived a perfect, law-abiding life, died a horrific death on a cross to make atonement for sin. He was buried and He rose on the third day, defeating death and the devil. Why? To secure life and salvation for lost sinners. What is necessary to obtain this glorious work of Jesus Christ? Repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the message of true hope and deliverance. That is what changes people and gives them true peace and all the things that the Bible says we are blessed with through the work of Christ. It's only going to come through acknowledging your sin, through turning from your sin, and by throwing yourself at a merciful Christ, Jesus. That's it, brothers and sisters. That's it, friends. That's the gospel. Those who seek to be saved apart from dropping their life of sin will not be saved. Biblical salvation is new life that begins through new birth. Jesus called it being born of the Spirit or born again. Our gospel presentations must include those essential salvation doctrines. We must remember and to speak these things in great gentleness and love. Because the vast majority of people are really, they're doing what they're doing and they're really unaware I mean, some of them get it. I guess some of them, we have consciences, but man, the conscience can be seared so badly that you don't even hear anymore from your conscience that says, wrong. But people need to hear the message of hope, the gospel. Help them to understand why they do what they do and why they behave the way they do. Use your own example. We Say we do what we do, not just you. We do what we do because we're a fallen race. But there's a rescuer, Jesus. Jesus, he's the rescuer. Repent and believe. May we as a church 
commit ourselves to proclaiming that gospel. And may we trust that God controls our circumstances and know that whatever comes our way has already passed through His loving hands. That's not a popular message, and the Bible says that the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. And if you're preaching it right, it's probably going to tick off some people. May it be the word of God and the truth of God that ticks them off and not your presentation and the way you handle it. But know that whatever you're receiving back, it's all come through the hands of a loving God. Nothing's changed with His position with you. He loves you. If you're in Christ, He's saved you. Nothing can take that away, neither death nor life, principalities. Not you, not even your doubt. Nothing. May we be bold and fearless as we march forward to take the truth, God's truth, into our community. Remember the words of Jesus, my friends. He said this to his disciples because he knew that when they were to go out and do ministry that it would be very hard and that they would be brought before synagogues and the Sanhedrin and leaders and persecuted and and all these things. He knew that they were going to go out and do this tremendous work of the gospel just like I believe he's using you guys to do in this community. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beautiful encouragement from our Lord who is with us as we go.